If you have been here for the last six, seven weeks, you'll know we are going through a series in the Gospel of Mark, and this week we are in chapter 6, and I'm just going to read you the beginning. So this is chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there, thanks mate, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he left there, he just healed Jairus' daughter. So Jairus' daughter came back from the dead after three days of being in the tomb. So he heals Jairus' daughter, and then he goes to his hometown. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? This is the bloke that makes the chairs. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, those guys are a nightmare. How is this guy doing this? And they took offense. Aren't these his sisters with us? And they took offense at him, it says. And then Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. And in calling the 12, his disciples, his closest followers to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. So... We've entitled this series Heaven at Hand, and the big idea is that heaven and earth were never meant to be two separate places, and the Gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus bringing those two places back together again. So the grand narrative of the Bible is heaven and earth are one and the same place in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were enjoying the fullness of the presence of God, and then sin happened, the fall happened, and as a result, heaven and earth were torn apart, and then the rest of the Old Testament is the people of God trying to put heaven and earth back together again, and and then Jesus arrives on the scene and says, I am fulfilling all of your attempts to do that in myself. And therefore, through me, I am going to put heaven and earth back together again. Oh, and by the way, you're going to join in and do it with me. And then the rest of the Bible is the story of it being reunited. And we are in that story. So as the church, as the people of God, as the disciples of God, we are participating with Jesus in bringing heaven and earth back together again. And so we have heard some amazing things happen in the first five chapters of Mark's gospel. And this week, we come to a crucial pivot point. So here's what's happened so far. Mark 1, Jesus heals a man in the temple who's been oppressed by a demon. And the thing to know is that when Jesus brings heaven and earth back together again, in the Bible, what we read is there's a clash of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness that we were just singing about, God's light shining into. And then there's the kingdom of light. And when Jesus brings them together, it's like there's a clash of two kingdoms. And that's what's constantly happening in the gospel of Mark. So he heals this person who's being afflicted by the kingdom of darkness. Then he goes to Simon's house and he heals his mother-in-law. And then the whole town comes to the door and he heals every single one of them. Then he has a sleep, he has a little pray. And then he heals someone who's suffering from leprosy, which by the way, no one else would have touched because they thought it was contagious. Mark 2, he heals a paralyzed man who's literally lowered through the roof of the home where he is teaching loads of people and it's packed. He then calls to himself a tax collector who would have been hated and the tax collector 
benefactor, gives up everything, gives it to the poor, and follows Jesus. He then claims to be Lord of rest, which basically means anyone that comes to him can have rest for their souls. So not just physical rest, but genuine, deep soul rest. In Mark 3, he then heals a man on the Sabbath who has a shriveled hand. He draws huge crowds because he's healing everyone who comes to him. Mark 4, he takes a little break to do some teaching about heaven, and then he does a big one. He's on a boat with his disciples, and they're terrified even though they're professional fishermen. He's asleep at the back. They wake him up, and they say, Jesus, we're going to die. Don't you care? He wakes up, and he rebukes the storm, and then the storm calms, and the waves go back as though it's as still as glass. And then Mark 5, he heals a man who's been put in tombs, who even though they chain him, he breaks free of the chains because he's so afflicted by the kingdom of darkness. He then heals a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. All the woman has to do is touch Jesus' cloak, and she's instantly healed. And then biggest of them all, end of our chapter last week, there's a girl who's been dead for three days, and he walks in, and he doesn't even pray for healing. He just says, my darling, get up. And she gets up, and she walks out, and he gives her some food. Unbelievable signs and wonders, leaving everyone around in no doubt that this is the Messiah. This is the Savior that we've all been waiting for. This is the person who's going to bring heaven and earth back together again. Finally, he is here, and the excitement levels must have been sky high. And then we have this moment in Mark 6 where he turns to his disciples and he says to them, Now you do it. It's your turn. A couple of years ago, my father-in-law gave me his water rower. He's here this morning. Thank you for the water rower. And I like to think over the last two years, I've been getting acquainted with this water rower. Um, I started out by doing a bit of research about rowing. And rowing is an amazing sport. If you want to get fit um, in a short amount of time, rowing is your best one. It works all the major muscle groups in your body. It does aerobic. It does physical strength. And it's low impact, so it doesn't destroy your knees like runners um, always seem to have problems with knees and ankles. Anyway, you should row. Rowing is really good for you. And so I got to know rowing really well, all the different types of rowing that you should do, the amount of time you should do in order to get fit in the least amount of time whilst rowing. And then I thought I'd better get to know the machine that I've been given here because it's a particularly nice one. It's made of really nice wood and you can stroke it and it feels nice and it's warm and it's lovely and not only is it made of nice wood but it's got this tank at the end that's full of water and so when you pull at it it feels like you're at the seaside so you can row and get fit whilst also feeling like you're on holiday it's a beautiful machine and then I broke it moving it from our previous house to this house and so I took it apart and really got to know the machine it's beautifully made I can t- attest to that and so then um, having taken it apart trying to fix it I realized I couldn't fix it and so then I had to put it in the car and take it to the headquarters of water rowing which is in West London it took me an hour and a half to get there. I had Ray in the car next to me screaming her head off the whole way. And I said, Ray, don't worry, because Daddy's going to fix this rower, and then it's going to be the best thing that's ever happened to our family. So I'm in the car, and we go to the headquarters. I get to the headquarters. I get given coffee and biscuits, and then given a presentation about all the, all the other different types of rowing, water, physical gym equipment you could possibly come across. It's amazing. This woman's literally demonstrating in front of me whilst I'm having a biscuit. And then I give my water rower in, and then every day after giving my water rower, and I ring up and I say, is it ready yet? And they say, no, it's not ready. We're waiting for a part next day. Is it ready yet? It's not ready. Next week, I ring up. Is the water It's not ready yet? Finally, three weeks later, I ring up and the person on the end of the phone who's got to know me by now is excited, said, Ben, it's 
ready. You can come and get your water out. So I drive an hour and a half back across London with Ray screaming in the car. I said, don't worry, Ray. We're getting the water out today. And then I brought it back and I put it in the garage. And everyone who comes to my house, I open the garage door and I say, look at that water out, guys. Isn't it amazing? It's beautiful. It's got water at the end. It's been in my garage for two months. Ask me if I've used it yet. But you're not having it back. <laughs> See, we can read Mark's gospel until we're blue in the face. We can learn all of the Greek words. And I love Greek words. I'm guilty of this myself. So often preachers get up and they say, you see this word that 500 people have translated over a long time? Well, I read that there's a different meaning to this word. And it means this. And isn't that exciting? And everyone gets excited in the room. We can learn the first century Jewish context of everything that's going on, like sandals. Aren't sandals amazing? Do you know what dust meant in the first century? Isn't that incredible? How exciting is this? We can be inspired by the teaching of Jesus and get really excited about it. We can hear all the miracles that he did and said, isn't that amazing? He raised someone from the dead. That's the most exciting thing I've ever read about. And on our head, we can start applying it to our own lives. Wouldn't it be amazing if I could follow the teaching of Jesus? Wouldn't it be amazing if those kind of miracles happened in my life? What about the things going on around me in the country, amongst my friends, my family, my work colleagues? I really wish that we could have those sorts of things happen now and we apply it to our own lives and we say, Jesus, would you please bring heaven and earth back together again? And then I believe he eyeballs us and he says, it's your turn. What are you going to do about it? Why don't you give it a go? And then we start making excuses. Well, I'm sure it'll work out in the end. And isn't the NHS amazing? It's wonderful in this country. We have the NHS and there's this hospital. And isn't it incredible that God uses doctors these days? And the state is amazing. We pay our taxes. And in this country, isn't it incredible the help that people get? And I even give to my church. And they do things like growing hope. Isn't it incredible? All these things that are happening. I'm not experienced to help in this situation. They'll probably be offended if I speak to them anyway. And do we even want people to be healed? I don't know it happened 2,000 years ago does it even happen now and the tragedy is we start to become a little bit like me and my water rower and we become very good about talking about the Christian faith and not so good about doing it and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else and the result is if I'm honest our faith becomes incredibly boring I read um, some commentaries on the little chapter that I just read from Mark there, and I kid you not, one of the um, theologians who wrote this commentary on Mark spent two chapters talking about the clothing that Jesus told his disciples to take with two chapters on the clothing, how it was really significant. This clothing was different to other clothing. Isn't it amazing that clothing was like this in the first thing? Two chapters on it didn't once mention the miracles that he asked them to do, or the people he told them to pray for. Our faith has this habit of becoming incredibly boring and it's so far from the fullness of life that Jesus has called us into as his disciples. It's so far from the adventure that he calls us into. And if we're not careful, not only does it become boring, we then become hypocrites, which by the way are the people in the Bible that Jesus hates the most. He's always talking about the hypocrites. Why? Because they give, this, they give it the big one, basically, and there's no evidence for it in their own lives. And then sometimes we find our faith becomes hard as a result, or we find that we lose faith altogether because we say, well, it just doesn't work. Jesus isn't doing this in my life, and therefore it's not true. Do we want to be like that at St. Peter's? Oh, wow, you answered. Thank you. We don't. 
So let's deal with some common reasons why we get very good about talking about rowing without actually doing any rowing. First excuse, I can't do it because I'm not God. Verse 3 says this. Two, sorry, to three. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this just the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They become incredibly familiar with Jesus and therefore they didn't see who he really was. But the point that I want to draw out of those two verses is yes, Jesus is fully divine. Yes, Jesus is God in human form. Come to reveal to us what Jesus is like. But we often forget when we think about that the whole time that Jesus was also fully human. And what does that mean for you and me? It means that he is the model for our faith. It means that when he tells us to follow him and do the things that he did, we actually have a chance of doing it. Why? Because Jesus was fully human and so are we. Theologians call this kenosis. It basically just means emptying. So Jesus self-emptied himself of certain divine attributes so as to identify as fully as possible with humanity. For example, Jesus wasn't all-powerful. So we read here in this verse, don't we, that he couldn't do any miracles. I love it that it says he couldn't do any miracles. And then, oh, but he did lay his hand on a few people and heal them, which we would all love in this room. But that constitutes for Jesus as no miracles whatsoever. He's not all-powerful. It depends on other stuff going on in the room. He's also not omnipresent, which means he's not everywhere at once. Jesus restricted himself to our time and space dimension so as to identify with us as humanity. He's also not all-knowing. He asks genuine questions. So later on, we read about him feeding the 5,000. And he says to his disciples, how many loaves and fish have you got? I don't think that he's asking that question for dramatic purposes, as though it makes the story a little bit better. I don't think he knew how many loaves or fish there were. And therefore, he's asking his disciples, why? Because he's not all-knowing. He'd limited himself to certain human attributes so that he could show us what it means to be truly human. You see, these attributes of himself are incompatible with true humanity. They belong to what it means to be the creator as opposed to the created. And so Jesus wanted to identify with us insofar as he could, obviously having not been created himself. And notice also, this is really important to stress, that Jesus didn't lay aside sinless perfection. And that's really important when we look at Jesus as our model for what it means to be a Christian and as we follow him in our discipleship. So this is both good news and also bad news. It's good news in that we're the same in kind as Jesus. And so therefore, he is the model for us of what it means to be truly human, what it means to be a Christian. But also, he's different from us in degree. So whereas we have this propensity to sin, which just creates distance between us and God and us and other people and therefore limits our ability to see heaven and earth come back together again, And Jesus shows none of that propensity to sin whatsoever and therefore basically has a higher hit rate than us. But that is not to discourage us. That just means that as we step out in faith, as we start doing what Jesus did, it means that we're not perfect and we won't get it right all the time and sometimes we'll fail. Which is okay because that's how we're supposed to grow in the things of the kingdom. And as long as we always do it from this basis of love, it's going to be all right. Paul tells us that we're to be transformed from one degree of glory into another so that we become more like 
Jesus. And, they, and so therefore, our life as Christians is to become more and more like Jesus. And so therefore, as we start to become more like him, we'll find that we're less limited in doing things of the kingdom. So excuse number one, I am not God, therefore I cannot do it, doesn't seem to apply in this place. So if that's true, how do we grow in following Jesus' instruction to participate in bringing heaven and earth together again, to become a church where we're not just talking about Christianity, where we actually see some of the stuff that we read about Jesus doing in our own lives and our own church community and where we live? How do we participate in bringing heaven to earth? Well, firstly, we grab and grow faith. So verse five and six says this, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Why couldn't Jesus do any miracles? Because of their lack of faith. Faith is incredibly important when it comes to the things of the kingdom, when it comes to bringing heaven and earth back together again. We read about it the whole time in the Gospels, that where there's faith, then there's miracles. Then there's heaven on earth as a result. So what is faith? Well, faith is essentially just trusting in Jesus. And that's exactly what had happened here when he went to his hometown. You see, they couldn't trust in him for who he was and what he could do because they thought they knew him. They'd become over-familiar with him because he grew up in their midst. How much faith do we need to bring heaven and earth back together again? Well, this is the good news. Very, very little. Tiny amounts. In fact, Jesus says you need faith as small as a mustard seed. I've never seen a mustard seed, but I imagine it's small. Very small. It's probably the smallest of seeds. Is that true? Smallest of seeds. And Jesus says to his disciples, which is a funny little story, I think it's in Matthew, um, where this man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, your disciples, they've tried to help my son, but they have rubbish. It's not working. Can you do it? And so Jesus just does it. And then the disciples say to Jesus, what, what, I don't understand. How come you could do that? And he says to them, it's faith. It's lack of faith, basically. And then he says, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then you can tell this mountain to move from that place to that place, which is brilliant, but also very unnecessary. Nobody needs to do that. But what the point that he's trying to make is that you do not need much of it in order to see unbelievable things. So where are you at with your faith? Some of us here might feel like they don't have any faith in Jesus, if faith is trusting in Jesus. Insofar, how are we trusting in him in our life? And here's the important thing to say to people who haven't put their trust in Jesus or wouldn't feel like their trust is in Jesus. They wouldn't consider themselves as Christians. Faith isn't a virtue. So it's not like a moral code that we need to get really good at doing. Faith is a gift given to us from God. A few weeks ago, I shared this analogy about falling off a cliff. And so imagine you're falling off a cliff, don't try too hard, and you're falling to certain death down below. And as you're falling, you see a branch coming out from the cliff. And you think, if I could just grab that branch, then I can hang on to it and I won't fall to certain death. Now, here's the thing about that branch. It doesn't really matter whether that branch can hold your weight or not when you're falling from a cliff. You just need saving. So you're not really thinking about and doing the sums as to whether that branch is going to work or not. You reach out and you grab it because you know you need saving. That is faith. That's all the faith that we need. We just need to be able to reach out and grab. What does that mean for those of us who wouldn't say they're Christians, aren't following Jesus? Well, firstly, it probably means that you need to know that you're falling in the first place. 
So many people, when we speak to them, we do courses here called Life Course, but other times just talking to people about faith and people that haven't had any contact with church is so many people say, well, here's the thing. Like, church, it's just an emotional crutch, isn't it? Like, I'm not needy. I don't need church. And I say to them every time, yes, that's exactly right. Church is the biggest emotional, spiritual, physical, everything crutch you could ever, ever possibly have. Why? Because I believe that Jesus can save us from everything and give us purpose and give us wholeness. Why do I believe that? It's because I believe that there's a certain hole in our soul, in our being, that can only be filled by the presence of God. And therefore, we all need saving in that way. And it's only the presence of God that can help us. And so the first thing you need to realize as kind of coming to faith is that you need something filling. You need to be saved. If we don't know we need to be saved, then we're not going to reach out and grab. Second thing is that we need to then turn from all the stuff that we've been grabbing hold of before to try and save us. And the classics and money, sex and power, I think that's a little bit boring and old now. To be honest, there's tons of different things that we grab hold of to try and save us, to try and fill that void that only God can fill. We turn from that and the Bible says we repent, which means we turn around, we stop walking in the opposite direction. And we say, God, I'm sorry for using all of that stuff to satisfy my own ends. I'm sorry for turning my life in on myself and making it all about me, myself and I. And instead, Lord, I choose to trust you. And I'm sorry, would you forgive me? I want to give my life to you. That is essentially what it means to grab faith. And it takes very little effort. In fact, no effort whatsoever. It requires us to believe in Jesus and trust in him. However, those of us who have been a Christian for a while, we can also grow in faith. So yes, it takes faith as small as a mustard seed to tell a mountain to go from here to there. But we can also grow as if you would need to do more than that. You can grow in faith. In Mark 4, he talks about heaven being like a mustard seed that grows into a tree, and then the birds of the air take shelter underneath the tree. It's this idea that it's like yeast that goes throughout the dough. As we grow in faith, we see more of heaven and earth come back together again. And it's the same with doing the stuff of the kingdom. It's the same as trying to walk in the steps of Jesus and do what we see and read him doing in Mark's gospel. Great example of this is healing. So first miracle I ever saw, I was at a weekend away, And I was sitting down in the congregation while they were doing the prayer bit. And um, basically, I was new to all of that prayer stuff at the front. And I didn't really know what was going on. So I thought I'd just observe it, just watch it. And it's happening. And someone got up on stage and said, I believe um, that God might have just told me that someone here has been blind in their left eye for seven years. And we should pray for them for healing. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's a very bold and specific word. What are the chances of someone being here who's been blind in their left eye for seven years? This girl next to me, literally on the seat next to me, jumps up and goes, that's me. And she runs forward. She gets prayed for. And she's instantly healed from uh, blindness in her left eye. We know that she's healed because she's then able to cover her right eye and read a ton of stuff. But also I saw the email string between her and her parents who are American back home um, and they were absolutely blown away by this. And then um, for the rest of the weekend, she kept bumping into the door frames of the conference center because her depth perception was thrown out, which I thought was quite funny. But she'd totally been healed. And so the thing about healing is I have faith that people will be healed when we pray for them in the power and the name of Jesus and they get healed. It doesn't mean we see healing every time. It doesn't mean we understand why not everyone is healed, but it does mean that we pray for healing, particularly here at St. Peter's. And we have seen some unbelievable healings over the years and we've seen some amazing things that God has done, but it starts when you see someone step out in faith and God honors that and heals them as a result and then we increase as we see more and more of it. So how do we participate in bringing heaven and earth back together? And we grab faith if we haven't already grabbed it, and then we grow in faith. 
Second thing, we know our authority. Verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits, over the kingdom of darkness, so they could bring the kingdom of light. And this is a constant refrain that we read about in Mark's gospel, don't we? Whenever Jesus does stuff, people around him say, what authority is this? This is remarkable. When he's in the synagogue and he's preaching, they say, what is this authority? Such authority. This can't be. What on earth is happening? When he's in the boat and he steals the storm and the waves and the disciples say, even the wind and the waves obey him. What is this? It's the authority of God. And here's the amazing bit. As disciples of Jesus, we have that exact same authority. This means we don't need to ask for it. It means that we don't need to work it up and try and grow in it. It means that we just have it. Which means when it comes to praying for things of the kingdom, for heaven and earth to come back together, there's very little that we need to do other than start knowing our authority in Jesus. And it's brilliant. When it comes to prayer stuff, what I find a lot happening in churches that are charismatic, believe in the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, is they think authority comes through things like shouting at people. If I just shout really loudly for healing, then that will convey some sort of authority. Or if I click my fingers like that and I blow on people and do strange things like that, then it means I've got authority. Absolute nonsense. You already have it. You don't need to do anything other than pray in the name of Jesus. We've received the authority that we need. What we need to do is we need to grow in our knowledge that we have it. So this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, this is faith he's talking about, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, may be opened, in order that you may know the hope for which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, he says, by the way, is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under the feet of Jesus, appointed him to be the head, it says, over everything. And this is the key bit. Why? Over everything for the church, for us so that we can see the same power and authority outworked in our calling. So what do we need to do? We need to ask God that he would open the eyes of our faith, our faith, so that we know the authority that we have in Jesus. I was um, away at like a vicar's clergy retreat, and there was a guy there who's planting a church in Telford, and he's being interviewed by the archdeacon for this job in Telford. And um, during the interview, they're walking around a lake, weirdly, and someone runs up to the two of them, and I'm guessing the archdeacon was in clergy clothing, as they do, and so therefore someone ran up, and came up to them and grabbed them both by the arm and said, can you help me? I'm a part of a satanic cult and I'm being oppressed by the demonic and I need to be free. And my mate Matt, during his interview, eyeballs this girl and says to her, be free in Jesus' name. And she starts shaking and then suddenly comes still and says, wow, that's better. And then she walks on her way. And then the archdeacon turns to this guy and he says, I've never seen that before. And he got the job, amazingly. Um, He also went to find her later and chatted to her. But he knew his authority in Christ. Do we know our authority? If we don't, we can pray that God will open the eyes of our heart, open our face so that we know the authority we have in him. No authority. Grab and grow faith. Fully depend. Verse 9. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals. 
but not an extra shirt. It's crucial. Um, This is linked to faith. So what's he saying here? Basically, faith is exercise when we can only have God show up and do what we're trying to do. That is the point. We depend on him for all that we're trying to do. So let's try and do some stuff that couldn't really happen unless God got involved and started to do it for us. Uh, At this same little retreat, there was... um, a pastor of a church in Uganda, and he'd planted tons of churches, and they were doing all sorts of amazing things. And one of the things, in fact, I've shared his story before, is that he started a school for a bunch of kids that were being abandoned in their village. And as the school grew, he then started a second school, and then um, like a skills thing to start equipping them in different skills for the workplace. And alongside doing, starting that school, he also started adopting into his family every child that got abandoned. And so I'm hearing him share his story again uh, last week two weeks ago and I'm kind of thinking as he's sharing it I'm like I wonder how many children he's actually got because I've got three and that's hard work so I imagine he's got more than three how many must have about 10 20 went up and asked him how many kids have you brought into your family have been adopted he has 200 children they all call him dad I said, how do you remember that? He knows all their names. Unbelievable. And he has this school that he set up in this home. See, the thing about Shadrach, his name is, in the Uganda, is that he realized what it meant to rely on God. Because I said to him, how do you feed 200 children on a daily basis? And he says, I have absolutely no idea. All I know is God asks us to do it, and every day there's enough food for the kids under our care. Isn't that incredible? What is that? That's dependence on God. What can we do that couldn't be done unless God got involved. We need to depend more on him. Finally, the biggie, act in obedience. This is the bit where we often stop. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill, and he healed them. What point am I trying to make? Jesus tells them to do something, and then guess what they did? They actually went and did it. They went out and did exactly what he just told them to. Unbelievable. What is that? That's just acting. In obedience. Jesus tells us to do something, we do it. Later in chapter 6, there's the brilliant miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And um, when you read commentaries on the feeding of the 5,000, it's a great example of missing the wood for the trees. Um, All the theologians get really excited about when the miracle happened. Did it happen when they brought the bread and the fish up to Jesus? Did it happen when he gave thanks in front of God? Did it happen later? When did the miracle happen? And they totally missed the fact that obviously the disciples were given the fish and the bread and as they walked out and gave it out, God multiplied it. What does that mean? It means as they acted in obedience, the miracle happened. Because if it happened before, then it wouldn't really be obedience, would it? If he told them to go out and give it to them, then it wouldn't have taken much faith in order to be able to do it because you would have seen tons of it in front of you. So we need to act in obedience. And that often means we act before we see it, which is what faith is. I've got another friend called Ben. He wasn't at this retreat. He should be at this retreat. He runs a church in Manchester on an estate. And um, he's got so many brilliant stories. But um, one of the stories he was sharing when I last saw him, was about this guy who was a drug addict, one of the main dealers on the estate, who came to faith and um, had this miraculous conversion um, and then over time came off dependency on drugs and was a key leader in their church and doing unbelievable things and one of their main guys. And when I saw Ben, he was gutted because just a couple of weeks before, really sadly, he'd relapsed back into drug addiction and died as a result. And so... This community had been massively hit by what had happened in their church. And he just had the Sunday following 
the, the event when his friend died and the whole community came to the church and the whole estate basically, people that had never been to the church before and throughout the whole service everyone's just weeping and, and mourning and then um, as they always do they then share food after the service for everyone who shows up and he's looking out at the numbers who have shown up for this memorial service and thinking there is no way I have enough food for this crowd and so he's the one apparently dishing out the rice and he gets to the end of this huge pot of rice and he felt like God say just stir it and I'll provide and so this guy I promise you he tells me this as he's stirring he watches rice start multiplying in his bowl the reason I know it's true is because apparently there was an atheist next to him who literally just starts shouting at the top of his the rice the rice like that and then there's a guy who's a brand new Christian next to him on his right who just starts weeping as he's seeing it unbelievable miracle in the context of incredible pain One thing I've noticed as we step out in faith and as we follow Jesus is it doesn't mean that we don't experience the darkness as well. So often it feels like we go in parallel. There's things in our life that just don't feel like heaven, that are really difficult. But at the same time, there's things in our life where it feels like God's really showing up. We act in obedience. Um, No, no, we don't have time. Okay. Grab and grow in faith. Go one further than you went before. Know your authority. Ask God to open your eyes. Fully depend on him. Do something that God can only deliver and then step out. Let's not be a church that just talks about this. Let's actually do it and let's stand and we'll do it now.